Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Californian Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Uh, hello, Andy. Yes, that's um, our, mo- our beautiful motel room in, uh, in the background here. Yes, for those of you who are, if we use this as a clip or if we don't, we'll use something else as a clip so you'll see this wonderful background. Instead, you can look at the books in my uh, in my home library. This is not a uh, like a Zoom, like a fake Zoom background or something that I use. This is actually my my library. Um, and if you look closely, you'll see some of Akil's books on one of those shelves. So, you know, last episode was the first episode of the third season of America's Constitution, which we mentioned in our description, but didn't really talk about uh, in the podcast itself. And um, it's pretty exciting, actually, that we've been able to do an episode every week for uh, for two years now. So happy new year and happy, happy new season, Akil. It's all because of you, Andy. So you say we, but you mean you. So thank you. <laughs> well, I think America's constitution without Amar wouldn't be much. So it's not all me. Um, and of course, it's it's another anniversary that that's coming up, which is the uh, you know a, a notorious anniversary of the January sixth uh, riot and whatever else you want to call it. Insurrection. Insurrection is what we want to call it because that's a, a constitutionally appropriate word, Andy. Okay, and we're going to get into that, um, actually, is one of the first things we're going to talk about today. But let me just give our audience a quick roadmap of what we hope to accomplish in this episode. Some, uh, sometimes I, I lay it out, and then it turns out that we're so uh, verbose that we wind up you know, not getting to everything, and then I have to re- edit it or apologize or whatever. So our plan, which we may or may not achieve, is to uh, discuss the findings, the report, of the January 6th commission, the referral, if you will, um, uh, from a constitutional point of view, as well as just from a patriotic point of view. Um, and that has various uh, subtopics, which we'll get to. Then we're going to talk about the, um, the newly minted uh, Congressman Santos and some of the uh, issues that surround, surround his, uh, his seating. Um, and then we're going to talk about what's going on this week, which may still be underway when you hear this, um, which is the a need for the House to elect a new speaker and some of the, ele- the issues involved with that. So, you know, big menu today. Okay, so let's talk first about January 6th. And of course, on January 6th, the Keel and I were uh, hanging out at his place in, in Guilford and uh, w- hoping to watch the uh, the. the the Senate uh, perform its functions, and then the House, and uh, of course, then we saw these horrific events. And uh, the, the joint session perform its functions. Yes, <clears throat> right. A special joint session presided mm-hmm. over by the Vice President. Yes, the certification of the electoral votes by the Congress, and the formal designation of the next President of the United States. And of course, the next time this takes place, the uh, procedures may be slightly different, or at least the uh, sort of the legal understanding of it may be slightly different because of the new act that was passed that was signed into law by President Biden, um, which has a uh, a section in it which which calls itself the Electoral Count Act, um, and so you know quite a lot new there. And I, I have to give a shout out to my daughter-in-law, Saren Lindgren-Savage, who uh, works for uh, 
Protect Democracy, um, a, uh, a nonprofit that does just that, and who was very involved with this bill from the beginning. So uh, although she's too modest to tell me all the details, um, I, I can tell you that she had a very important role. I'm very proud of her. So way to go, Sarah. Okay, so the January 6th Commission has, has issued uh, a report. And now, of course, the first issue, I suppose, uh, from a constitutional point of view is, was this investigation constitutionally sound? Was it permitted? Was it appropriate under the Constitution? Is this one of the powers of Congress? Is that, um, where is that in the Constitution, Akil? And uh, we've talked about this actually in previous episode, I think. So the answer is Congress's uh, power of oversight and investigation is absolutely central and constitutional, but, but, but it's not explicit in the Constitution. I'm an originalist. I believe in text. I believe also in history and in structure. Originalism pays attention to early understandings, early um, practices that the decision of 1789, for example, and how to think about presidential removal power. Constitution doesn't say, as our audience knows, doesn't say explicitly that top, what we call cabinet officers, heads of departments, people like um, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, doesn't say explicitly that they serve at the president's pleasure. Constitution doesn't, but that's been established from the first Congress on, a thing called the decision of 1789. And I wrote a book called America's Unwritten Constitution in 2012, and I showcased the decision of 1789 and say that's a really important gloss on the executive power of the United States. Well, Constitution, and that's implicit, in effect, executive power, implicit. There's also implicit legislative power, and the most important implicit legislative power is actually this power of investigation and oversight. So, Andy, in 2012, I wrote this book called America's Unwritten Constitution, and here's how I begin chapter 9 of that book. In a system famous for its detailed enumeration of congressional powers, Congress, in fact, enjoys some remarkable powers that are not clearly enumerated. These powers can easily be read into the Constitution, but only if its text is viewed through the prism of practice, and in particular, early practice. Today, each House of Congress can investigate virtually any subject of legitimate public interest. At times, each House can also act as a policeman, prosecutor, judge, jury, and jailer all in one. For example, each House on its own motion can incarcerate an uncooperative witness, whether a public official or a private citizen, to prompt his compliance or punish disobedience that occurred earlier in the session. Each house can also adjudicate and punish other contempts against itself, such as the attempted bribery of its members. Each house has its own enforcement official, known as a sergeant-at-arms, and is free to use its own building as a jail so long as it is in session. So that's Steve, Steve Bannon can be subpoenaed, and if he doesn't comply with the subpoena, he can be punished. But all of that presupposes that there's a proper power of investigation and oversight, and there is, and that's been true from day one, from the Washington administration. Congress did this. Now, since we've had all these episodes, Andy, on independent state legislature theory, here's the analogy, okay? The analogy is from the very beginning – 
the word legislature in the Constitution was n not understood to mean a free-floating legislature, but a legislature as defined by the state constitution. And so what was really important? What New York actually did in 1789, what New York did in 1792 in construing that word legislature. And in fact, what various state constitutions had done even before the U.S. Constitution in construing counterpart language in the Articles of Confederation. Originalism isn't just textualism. It's textualism in light of history and of structure. So the answer to your question, Andy, is yes, it's one of the Congress's most important functions, this power of each house, not just Congress as a whole, but of each house, to have investigation and oversight, but you won't find a specific clause in the Constitution that says it just that way. You won't find an oversight clause, an investigation clause, but you will find it in the history of the document, its early implementation, the structure of the system as a whole. That's what Congress does and has always been understood to do that. In effect, you can say that's built into the word Congress um, so, because it's, it's a certain kind of body, the heir, the, the descendant, in effect, of state legislatures and parliament that did things like that. Now, the counter is, oh, well, parliament in England is, has all power. It's, it's, it's not a product of enumerated powers. And, oh, that's true of, of state legislatures as well in many of the states. They have general powers, not specific enumerated powers. And that's why, and that's not a bad argument. That's a good argument. But that's why the early practice is so important and so decisive because everyone seems to have understood from day one this was a permissible congressional function. So when, they, when the Congress first started performing investigations, they couldn't rely on early practice to justify it. So how did they justify it? They said it basically was implicit and intrinsic in the nature of Congress as the first branch. That's what it's supposed to do. Now, they could also talk about, I mean, just think about it. They are given certain functions. And they, for example, are uh, tasked explicitly with passing laws of a certain sort. Well, how are they supposed to do that if they don't know facts? And how are they going to find the facts if they don't have a subpoena power? They're given power to amend the Constitution. Even if they don't have a certain enumerated power uh, today, maybe they should have it. But in order to figure out whether they should have it and propose a constitutional amendment, they maybe are going to need to, to learn things. And, and that may require the, the subpoena power. They have impeachment power, surely. And surely, if they think someone has misbehaved, they get to impeach an officer or ex-officer. Congress is given impeachment power. That's akin to indictment power in the criminal justice system. It has different consequences. In a criminal grand jury can force someone to stand trial and possibly be at risk of losing his life in a capital case, definitely his liberty. That's not what impeachment is about. It's, it's a much more limited punishment, but the House, in effect, is acting as a kind of grand jury. And just as grand juries need to be able to investigate things through a subpoena, well, the House needs to be able to do that. The Senate is an impeachment jury, in effect. And just in a courtroom, the lawyers need to be able to subpoena people in order to decide what happened. Well, that's, that's true for the, the Senate also in an impeachment context. So each house is given the power to discipline its own members in case of certain misconduct to expel them. That's the kind of adjudicatory power. There, there is a broad separation of powers, but there are exceptions. The veto is a kind of legislative um, power. 
And that was relevant, for example, in the ISL situation that we, we've been talking about when it comes to state governors having a veto power and, in effect, being part of the state legislature, even though in ordinary language, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the governor's not part of the legislature. Well, through the veto, she or he is a kind of part of the legislature. Well, that's true of the U.S. Constitution as well. Constitution has separation of powers. Article one is the legislature. Article two is the executive. Article three is the judiciary. And ordinarily, you'd say as a matter of pure separation of pure separation of powers, uh, legislators legislate and only legislators legislate. Um, and that's the only thing that legislators do. And executives execute and only executives execute. And that's the only thing that executives do. And judges adjudicate and only judges adjudicate. And that's the only thing that judges do. That's pure separation of powers, but it's not our system. The president is involved in legislation. The legislature, the Congress, is involved in adjudication, in impeachment, in expulsion, in, in disciplining um, each house, disciplining its own members, and in kind of executive function, a prosecutor-like function, like investigating in the context of possibly impeaching someone. The judiciary is actually allowed by law to make certain kinds of appointments to inferior officers within the judiciary. Ordinarily, appointment is a kind of executive function. So there's a general separation of powers, but then there are these qualifications and exceptions. There's kind of checks and balances system alongside a, a pure separation of power system. And congressional oversight is a huge part of that. So just to summarize, yes, what the first Congress said, they couldn't quite point to congressional precedents. They could point to parliamentary precedents. They could point to state legislative precedents. But the counter is, oh, Parliament's different. It's not a body of enumerated powers. Oh, state legislatures are different. They're not enumerated power systems. So then they will push back to making a broader arguments of structure and implicit authority. And they said, we can't do that textually are assigned to us without some powers of investigation and oversight. To repeat, we have to pass laws, but we need to know facts and we need to subpoena people to find facts. We need to propose amendments. And again, we need a subpoena power and investigatory power for that. And we need to discipline our own members, but we're need, going to need to have fact-finding authority and subpoena power for that. And we're specifically tasked with actually um, responding to executive and judicial branch misbehavior through the impeachment process. And that's going to require, again, us to be, in effect, like a grand jury or a criminal tr uh, trial jury in the ordinary judicial system and prosecutorial system. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's. I think the the least arguable part of that would be probably the, you know, sort of the judicial aspects of c Congress's function when they're investigating a uh, possible impeachment. That would be, you know, probably the most obvious. Um, and from that in that from that point of view, even if one were to take issue with some of the other aspects of that argument, in the case of the January sixth Commission, um, where the possibility of impeachment certainly sat out there um, that that would you might argue that Congress's power is is at its height um, in that circumstance and then this is an attack on Congress so surely you know physically an attack on Congress and an attack on not just the physical body of Congress but also Congress attempting to carry out a congressional function that's mandated to it by the Constitution and by the by statutes. From all those points of view, I think you could say that Congress's investigatory power uh, is at its height in this context. Right. You are, Andy. And I want to tell you what actually an early Congress did. 
Um, so you said it's not just impeachment, it's actually also self-protection. So here's what happened in 1795. Several members of the House reported that a non-member, Robert Randall, this is actually, um, I'm reading actually from America's uh, Unwritten Constitution, Chapter 9, page 339 for those who have it uh, on their shelves. In 1795, several members of the House reported that a non-member, Robert Randall, had tried to bribe them. The House promptly ordered its sergeant-at-arms to arrest Randall, gave the accused a three-day trial in the House, convicted him of attempted corruption by a vote of 78 to 17, and incarcerated him for the next week. They were protecting themselves against bribery, and in that context, they actually assumed, in effect, the power of prosecutor, judge, juror, jailer, kind of all in one, because they were protecting themselves, and they have special power to do that. And you might think, wow, gee, the Constitution doesn't clearly say any of that, and it doesn't. But that's early practice that has been unanimously endorsed by the Supreme Court in a series of cases that go all the way back to the Marshall Court era and and continue through the Warren Court era. Right. And, you know, just to take it one step further in this case, you could argue that, well, you know, the executive uh, is in charge of, of law enforcement and has to protect the Capitol, so they should be... But in this case, there's some, you know, it was worthy of investigation whether the executive was living up to their duty to do that. And so who's going to investigate it? You know, so so that uh, it seems appropriate from that point. OK, so we've established, I think, um, that this was a legitimate investigation uh, in the sense that Congress had the power to do it. Um, and one of the, so one of the things they had to determine, I think, one of the questions that they faced was, you know, what was this in the end? What was January 6th? And I think specifically, you know, was it an insurrection? And uh, so from a legal point of view, Akil, what would you say their findings um, indicate, even though they didn't make a legal finding one way or the other? Um, did they, they issued subpoenas, they had witnesses, they conducted a lot of process that, uh, you know, the individual, private individuals can't do. So um, what, did they, what did they come up with on that question, would you say? Well, I think they just provided a lot of evidence that the scale of this episode really exceeded that of a mere riot or... Melee. Someone once asked a former colleague of mine, the late Leon Lipson, if uh, the Yale Law School faculty had factions. And he said, no, we're not organized enough for that. So the question is, just how organized was this? Just how big um, was this episode? What was its aim? Um, what, were, what were at least a bunch of the people there trying to accomplish and the January 6th commission generated a lot of evidence suggesting that the, the scope and scale of the ambition here was to prevent the orderly transfer of power to a duly elected new president. And nothing could be more threatening to the integrity of a constitution than that. And and when you go directly at the heart of a constitution, when you're trying to un, 
would topple a constitution to interfere with its proper processes of, of proper transfer of power to the chief executive of the United States, a person who, who begins by taking an oath of office to the Constitution, that's what an insurrection is. That, that, um, it, so this wasn't just a tantrum. This wasn't just an argument. It wasn't merely a, a, a mob or Legitimate uh, political discourse. Or a riot, even. It was aimed at interfering with the highest of constitutional and democratic uh, slash republican processes and that's it was an insurrection it was a mini 1861 and indeed in 1861 the confederates never got their flag into the capitol building and they did on january 6th two years ago and so you know some of this came out of the some of this we knew of course but some of it came out of the investigation because there was a lot of testimony um, about you know conversations that had taken place, efforts that were being made or not made, you know to to put this down, um, and uh, so I think that the the width of the of the insurrection came out of it as well. So given that um, this finding, or at least this this truth that emerged from from the investigation. Um, the commission had several options and what, what it could do about it. Andy, let me just take one step back. To, see, because we now established two things. We're saying, okay, and you and I, we were watching it together on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, that, that memory will always stay with me. Like, where were you when John Kennedy was assassinated or when Americans reached the moon? This was, this was an amazing episode that Americans are watching together as a television community in, in, in real time, like the Kennedy assassination or the moon landing. And we've established, okay, three things, maybe four. They breached the Capitol. They, they breached the Capitol. They broke in. And that was an assault on Congress. That was your first point. Congress was the victim here. Okay. And then I just said, oh, it was an assault also on the Constitution, because what Congress was going to be doing that day was performing its highest constitutional function of certifying the transfer of power under the Constitution. It was a breach. It was an assault on Congress, an attack on Congress. It was an attack on the Constitution. And the final point is this didn't just you know, happen accidentally. There was purposive action. And now the only question is, you know, how many people you know, were involved in the conspiracy or the purposive action? Hillary Clinton used to tell a story when she was trying to show that she has some sort of southern bona fides, um, having grown up in, in Illinois, but she, she, she married a, a southerner. She says they got a, a, you know, an expression down south, when you see a turtle you know, on a fence post, it didn't just get there. Okay, see, because the turtle can't climb the fence, but someone has to put the turtle on top. I mean, it's a good southern saying, you know, like that old dog won't hunt. A lot of animal metaphors. All hat, no cattle. A lot of animal (laughs) metaphors, okay. It's an agricultural, um, it's got a great agricultural tradition. So, capital was breached, and that's an assault on Congress, and that's an assault on the Constitution, an an insurrection in, in the highest way, and... It didn't just happen. Someone put that turtle there. That's, in effect, what the January 6th committee is trying to establish, and I think, you know, has established. So given that, what were its, uh, what were its choices? And maybe we should evaluate them, them each to see, did they pursue that choice, and should they have pursued that choice? Right. I think there are three 
Once you find all of that, and that this is as a result of the oversight and investigation, which was all proper, using the subpoena power, which is coercive, and saying if you don't comply with the subpoena, we can go after you, like Steve Bannon, and, and, and punish you. And again, that goes all the way back to 1795. So uh, once we've established all of that, I think there are three basic buckets. One, impeachment. Two, criminal prosecution. Three, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a certain kind of disqualification from, from office. So uh, impeachment, criminal prosecution, and 14th Amendment Section 3. Those are the three buckets in which you could try to now take this set of facts that you think you've acquired and, and now do something um, with it legally. Just to add a fourth, they could they could write a report. They could, they could report their findings. Which um, they did do, and I should have said that, right? You are, Andy. Okay. But let's evaluate the, the, these choices. Um, so we discussed the report. So uh, impeachment. So is that something that they – now, they didn't do it, um, and they can't impeach everybody. Like, they can't impeach John Eastman or someone like that, that someone who's arguably involved in this. But there's certainly some people that – you know, under some circumstances would fall under the impeachment power. So should they have pursued that and could they have? They didn't. Let's start, let's start with your key point. Not everyone is impeachable in America. They can't impeach Andy Lipka. They can't impeach Akhil Amar. And I think you're probably right. They can't impeach John Eastman because none of us are now or ever have been officers of the United States. And in America, people who have never been officers of the United States are not impeachable. They are in Britain. Britain, actually, um, anyone is impeachable because the parliament is a high court um, and the, it has all sovereign power, kind of. And in parliamentary history, private persons have been impeached. And the punishment for impeachment in England is not limited to disqualification from office or removal from office. Parliament can cut your head off. It's sovereign. It's, 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 it's very scary. Okay. So Akil can't be, but in America, people who have never been officers are not impeachable. So Akil isn't impeachable because uh, the Senate never confirmed him, never even gave him a hearing when he was nominated for a position by Barack Obama. I've gotten over it. I can't, sound be like impeached. it. <laughs> I can't be impeached, and uh, you can't be impeached, and I think John Eastman has never been an officer, so I think he can't be impeached, and I'm going to be a little provocative. But my friend who's been on the podcast, my co-teacher, Philip Bobbitt, can be impeached. Why pick Philip? Because he has actually served as an officer in the United States, and because he's been on this podcast saying, oh, the only people who can be impeached are current officers, not ex-officers. And I don't buy it. And I, our audience can hear that previous episode. Now, um, of course, President Trump was impeached twice. Both times the House voted while he was still president. And Philip said, well, since the House voted to impeach the second time when he was still president, I guess you can have the trial. The Senate trial occurred after Trump was out of office. And Philip took the, I thought, slightly odd position in the discussion that we had. Well, the Senate can actually hold the trial, but it just can't convict him, which I said, what kind of trial is that? Okay. So, but Philip agreed to all of that only because Trump was still in office when the House impeached him for the second time. My position is different than that. 
My position is for impeachment purposes, once an officer, always an officer, and you can always be impeached. Um, not just you know having the trial after you're out of office, but the, the House impeachment itself can occur after you're, you're out of office. And I'll explain the obvious common sense uh, reason for that in you know, structural reason in just a minute. And I know our audience is going to say, well, what about double jeopardy and other things? We will get to all of that. But the first point is ex-officers, Akil believes, are impeachable precisely because the misconduct that they may have been engaged in um, even while officers may not come to light until after they're out. And it may not come to light because they themselves were stonewalling and preventing that evidence from coming to light. That's part of their impeachable misconduct. And it would just be absurd to say that you can get away with all of that as, as long as you, you make it till your last day. That's a structural argument. My friend Philip disagrees. And by the um, way, you're going to hear an argument that sounds a lot like this, even though it's a different argument, when we get to Congressman Santos. We absolutely are. So um, um, all these things come together in fascinating ways, Andy. So Philip takes the view that you have to be a current officer. And I say that makes no sense. And that's not actually what our precedents, in effect, say. And textually, the Constitution isn't doesn't speak with utter distinctive clarity that you must be an existing officer. If the text were utterly am- unambiguous, I'd say, yeah, well, then, of course, you've got to go with the text. But if you had asked me 20 years ago, are only officers impeachable? I said, of course. So he said, so, so you can't impeach someone who isn't an officer. And I said, of course you can't. But then there's, ah, but you said, you know, I'm not an officer. I once was. You know, you just said, Akil, you know, you can't impeach someone who isn't an officer. It all depends on what the meaning of the word is. is. And I said, yeah, but I wasn't focusing on the weird, unusual, you know, edge case of an ex-officer. But now, actually, that you're getting me to focus on that, I, let me revise my position a little. When I said, you, you know, that only officers are impeachable and that non-officers aren't impeachable, what I really meant was that if you've never been an officer, you're not impeachable. But if you are an officer, I believe you're always impeachable. And, in fact, I also believe you're impeachable even for conduct that you may have engaged in before you were an officer. So we'll come up to that. And now that's connected to George Santos a little bit more. So let me tell you actually about the Thomas Porteous impeachment in just a moment. He was a judge, and I thought he was impeachable for federal judge for actions that he undertook even before he was a federal judge. But let's just first stick with, let's say, President Trump. If President Trump engages in the most egregious conduct imaginable on the last day of his term... Which is just about what happened here. Yes, but there might, and there might not be time to actually gear everything up. Mm-hmm. And you can't let him get away with that. Your tradition has a word for this. Chutzpah. You know, it, is, it is called chutzpah. That's, it's chutzpahic. And what's the classic example of chutzpah? The fellow who kills his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. You know, now you can't let Trump, and this is um, in Amar speak, the rule of absurdity, that of course the Constitution, when it says officer, unless it says it with distinctive clarity, isn't actually ruling out impeachment of ex-officers, especially in the context in which the impeachment doesn't occur while they're in office because of their own misconduct, which includes 
their own covering up and stonewalling. Now, note that all of that presumes that impeachable misconduct doesn't necessarily have to be a statute book crime, although obstruction of justice is a statute book crime today. But in my view, high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't require a statute book offense. For Trump, we'll talk about double jeopardy and other things in just a moment. But the first objection is he can't be impeached because he's no longer an officer. And they say, doesn't matter. And now I'm giving you um, the people on my side. I agree. I said the text is not clear one way or the other. The common sense of the thing and the purpose is overwhelmingly clear. And the purpose isn't just to remove someone from office. It's to actually establish forever that you did this bad thing, in part so that history will judge you, but that, so other people, ex-ante, will know they shouldn't misbehave at the end and think they can get away with it because that would set very bad precedents going forward. Okay, So that's the common sense and structure of the thing. Here's another kind of commonsensical point. Let's imagine that you're about to be impeached and you know you're about to be impeached. And so one second before, one minute you before. You resign. Yes, ha-ha, can't get me now. Pension. And, and that's, you know, absurd to allow you mm -hmm. to do that. And once you understand that, just working backwards – at any time after you've committed your impeachable offense, you might resign in order to just escape impeachment if, if, we, um, if we played by Phillips rules because, oh, oh, my gosh, I just see now there's a, there's a camera that caught me in the act. We can't let you get away with that. So, so if you can't resign a minute before they're about to say you're impeached, you can't resign and, and, and escape the consequences, escape the impeachment gavel. If that's true a minute before the gavel comes down, that's true five minutes before, it's true five days before, it's true five months before, it's true for every moment after you've committed your impeachable offense. You're still on the hook, and resignation shouldn't save you um, from that. So that's the, that's the logic of the thing. Again, I'm going to tell you now about the precedents and, and, um, and the authorities who, who I have on my side. I mean, I think another sort of structural way to look at it is to look at what the punishments are that the Constitution provides for. If the only punishment it provided for was expulsion from office, then you could make an argument that it, how could it apply to someone that is an ex-officer because you can't punish them in the way the Constitution provides. But it provides for two other punishments, or several other punishments, one of which you alluded to. It's not, it's not explicit, but the this, you know, kind of the censure, the, you know, the, the disdain, you know, the dishonor. Yes, the dishonor. Yes. yes, the conviction itself is the punishment, and the then finding. The, and it also provides for a disqualification as well. Absolutely. Um, as a possibility. And so you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be allowed to escape disqualification. And I initially got into it thinking for, for, about disqualification. You shouldn't be allowed to escape the punishment of disqualification by stepping down, resigning one minute ahead of the impeachment gavel. But the more I thought about it, that's not just disqualification, it's dishonor. Okay, who have I got on my side? What have I got on my side? I have actually a precedent in which an ex-officer was, in fact, impeached by the House of Representatives and tried by the Senate. He wasn't, in the end, convicted, so it's a slightly muddy precedent. So in 1876, there was an impeachment of an ex-officer. His name was Belknap. The House impeached him, even though he was an ex-officer, even though he resigned at some point, and the Senate did try him. Now, the reason that's not the absolute most perfect precedent imaginable is he wasn't convicted. 
Um, but a majority of the Senate actually did make a ruling that ex-officers were impeachable. And the House, of course, obviously a majority must have thought that because they impeached him as an ex-officer. So that's my precedent. I've given you the common sense of the thing. Now, the structure. One person I definitely have on my side is someone who, very interesting, he's on both sides of this in that he was president of the United States, but he was also an important member of the House of Representatives, the impeaching body. There haven't been that many on both sides. And he's um, almost unique in that he was in the House of Representatives after his presidency. Now, Andrew Johnson was actually impeached and then was a senator very briefly before he died. But John Quincy Adams was president of the United States and then a member of the House of Representatives for many years thereafter. Here's what he says, Andy. We can put this on our website. It's on Monday, April 13th, 1846. And here I take occasion to say that I differ with the gentleman from Virginia. And I believe other gentlemen have stated that the day of impeachment has passed by the Constitution from the moment the public office expires. I hold no such doctrine. I hold myself so long as I have the breath of life in my body amenable to impeachment by this house for everything I did during the time I held any public office. Now, my friend Philip and I disagree about whether that is crystal clear. I believe it is crystal clear. I think my friend Philip could say, well, JQA was wrong. He was wrong about lots of things. And I would say, right you are, Philip. JQA was wrong about lots of things. But he clearly said this. He's on my side. And our audience can listen to that earlier episode. And I have to tell you, audience, that, you know, we've, we have covered some of this in our past episode, but there was no way that Akil was going to let this go by without, without talking about John Quincy Adams because he's working on the second volume of his uh, coming trilogy, you know, uh, The Words That Made Us, and now the second volume is The Words That Made Us Equal, and He's every day I'm getting, oh, this, that, this new fact about John Quincy Adams is turning out to be the, this absolutely incredible character, 51 volume diary. And, you know, so he can't, he can't resist talking about this John Quincy Adams. This is true. Adams. I've got John Quincy Adams on the brain. Let me just, uh, since you, you know, and I haven't plugged the book in the last 30 seconds, and this isn't even plugging the last one, it's publishing, plugging the next one, which won't be available for a while. But here's what I actually say in a chapter that's entitled, Chapter Two. Braintree, Quincy, and Buffalo. Here's one thing that I say. So free, free preview, and no guarantee it'll be in the final edition. But. Correct. John Quincy Adams, who served in public, national public life longer than any other American statesman, was also the only president who came to know both of the two largest characters in American history, George Washington who died in 1799, and Abraham Lincoln, who was born in 1809. So I just told you two amazing things about JQA. He served longer in public life than anyone else in history. And this was his view of what public life was all about and impeachment was all about and honor and, and, and all the rest. So, um, And he's the only president to have come to know both Washington and Lincoln. He's a fascinating character. I didn't understand just how fascinating he is. When was the last time you know you had a conversation with anyone about John Quincy Adams? But Andy's right. I've got him on the brain. But way back when, when Philip and I had this debate about impeaching ex-officers, 
I told Philip, I thought I had John Quincy Adams on my side and says, oh, you're no, you're misinterpreting that passage. And I, I, I'll put, we'll put it up on the website. You can read it for yourself, audience. Okay. And you can also listen to the rest of the discussion, including a very good song. So anyway. Um, but that one, by the way, he admitted that Trump was impeachable mm-hmm. the second time because he was still in office when the House impeached him. Now, that's going to be totally relevant to the next question, which is, okay, Akil, you persuaded me, maybe, that ex-officers are impeachable, but been there, done that, double jeopardy. What are you talking about? How can we go and double or triple whack him again? So I think maybe that's the next issue I need to address, right? Yes, but of course, this we should just make it clear that, um, of course, they could impeach people in addition to Donald Trump. There, are, you know, The January 6th commission could have you know, suggested to the Judiciary Committee or whoever else that they investigate other, but in the case of Me- Trump... Meadows or other right. folks, yes. But in the case um, of Trump, he, he, the double jeopardy question in particular applies to him because, if it applies at all, because he was impeached uh, as opposed to Meadows, who was not impeached. Right, and so I would say three or four things about this. First, in the narrowest and most technical sense, double jeopardy is about the ordinary criminal justice system. And it's about being put in double jeopardy of life or limb, which is a metaphor for graphic criminal punishment in the ordinary system. And impeachment does not put one's life or limb in jeopardy. It puts one's good name in in jeopardy, but not life or limb. And we have different rules for impeachment. Impeachment and lower because they don't involve life or limb. In the criminal but in the, justice system, in the criminal justice system, are there times when you could be charged and life and limb is not at stake? And yet, does that a, mean that me- double jeopardy doesn't apply? No, it means that life or limb is a metaphor mm-hmm. or a metonym for all serious criminal punishment, even if it's just only a term of le- years, for example. That's not life. That's not limb. It's all serious criminal punishment. But here's the point: in the criminal justice system, here's what you get. You get, for example, proof beyond reasonable doubt. Well, that's not true in the impeachment context. You actually have to be indicted by a grand jury. Um, Well, that's not quite true, although you could say the House of Representatives is a kind of grand jury. But there's not only proof beyond reasonable doubt, there's um, a requirement of unanimity for conviction. And that's definitely not true in impeachment, two-thirds suffices to convict. So from the, in the narrowest and strictest way, double jeopardy doesn't apply because this isn't criminal punishment. Now, more broadly, I'm saying um, it makes sense to have a different set of standards when your life is at stake, when your bodily liberty is at stake, than when the only thing that's at stake is your eligibility to serve in office and your good name, which are very, very important, but they're not the same as a capital punishment situation. Okay. But more broadly, is it fair to double whack someone when you've already actually had the trial? And I think, no, in general, that's not fair. So now let me make a point. Even if this were a criminal case, you could only be, you're only immunized from double jeopardy for a, a second prosecution for the same offense. And here I actually don't think it was the same offense. It was a different offense because we now have new evidence of your stonewalling and your obstruction of justice. Those are different offenses to some extent than you were charged with earlier. And and in fact, one of the reasons, Philip, that I'm talking to Philip as if he's listening to this episode, that 
it would be very bad to require that someone be an officer in order to be impeached is then there's going to be a rush to try to actually vote for the thing, even if all the evidence isn't in, just, you know, because it's beat the clock. Because otherwise, you know, at midnight, poof, the coach turns into a pumpkin and the, the white horses turn into white mice or something. Now, I actually think because there were concerns raised by very serious constitutional scholars like my dear friend Philip Bobbitt, the House actually kind of rushed its job last time around to get in under the wire. But that's all in part because Donald Trump was misbehaving until the very end. And I think he can be impeached now for all sorts of stuff that has only now come to light. We didn't have evidence before and has only now come to light, not just randomly, but because he himself was stonewalling at the time. And that is in and of itself an impeachable offense. Richard Nixon, actually one of his impeachable offenses was obstruction of justice, stonewalling, not giving the impeachment authorities, the investigators, them, the oversight folks, the information that they legitimately had a right to demand. That's itself impeachable. Okay, so I think I think that's a persuasive case that it isn't double jeopardy. It's not the, not the same offense. And it's not, so. and it's not unfair. It's not, I could, not just do, double jeopardy. It's not really a violation of due process of mm-hmm. law. Now, let me tell you, even in a criminal case, and I've written articles, I've written two articles on double jeopardy, and they've been cited by the United States Supreme Court. So this is something that I actually have, have, have focused on. Let's imagine. They wouldn't a read the case. second one because they said it was really the same article as the first one. <laughs> but it wasn't. It was a different article with slightly different <laughs> elements of the offense. Yes, you're seeing, the, 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 uh, Andy, you're, you're seeing. So, so here's the joke. The joke is the guy's acquitted of bank robbery, and he says to the judge, that's great, Your Honor. Does this mean I get to keep the money? Okay. And ordinarily, maybe so if you're um, acquitted of bank robbery. You can't be charged with bank robbery again. But here's what you can be charged with. Robbing a different bank on a different day. Okay, that's a, just a separate crime. That's point one. But here's what you could also be prosecuted for, even if you were acquitted of bank robbery. If you took the stand in the first robbery case and you lied that's perjury. That's a different offense than bank robbery. And you are on the hook for perjury in your first case, even if you were acquitted of the bank robbery, you see. And I think Donald Trump committed the equivalent, the impeachment equivalent of perjury. And in fact, you might say, well, isn't, isn't that uh, the, the loophole that swallows up um, everything? You've pled not guilty in the first case to bank robbery. And isn't that a lie? And technically, no, that's not a lie, because technically we understand what you say it's not guilty to mean actually simply prove it. That's different than taking the stand and lying about what you did. Okay, so perjury is actually different than pleading not guilty. And lots of criminal defendants don't take the stand. But let's imagine not only did you lie in your first criminal trial, you tried to bribe a juror. Well... If you tried to bribe the juror, that's a separate criminal offense, and you can be prosecuted for that. Um, And some have even taken the position that if you did try to bribe the jury, the initial conviction gets to be set aside. It's an exception to double jeopardy because you were never in jeopardy in the first place because the fix was in. And, Andy, you know who said just that? You do know who said just that. Yes, you said it, and so did Law & Order. 
So J- Jack McCoy yes. cites me. He quotes me word for word for word my Columbia Law Review article on Devil Jeopardy, and I'm watching it, you know, actually, and I say to Vanessa, I said that, I said that. She said, oh, yeah, sure. And actually ran upstairs and actually pulled down. <laughs> and you the, pulled out the, Marshall McLuhan, who said that, yes. <laughs> exactly. And it was word for word because – because he said, this is Jack McCoy's argument. He was never in jeopardy in the first place because the fix was in. So there are exceptions to double jeopardy traveling through the litigation misconduct of the initial defendant. If you lie and take the stand, if you if you perjure yourself, if you try to obstruct justice, if you try to bribe jurors. And Donald Trump did all of these things. And my claim further is he has been continuing to do these things even after the presidency, my view is you can be impeached, not just after you're an officer, but for conduct after you were an officer and also for conduct before you were an officer. So if you continue after having served to basically be doing impeachable things, you're, you're on the impeachment hook for that. Let me take the easier one, conduct before you were an officer because George Santos is going to be saying, I know, I hope we talk about this. Oh, whatever I did, I didn't do as a congressman because I'm not yet a congressman. So ha ha ha. OK, well, that came up in a recent impeachment trial of a man named Porteous. And I was the, one of the impeachment advisors to the House of Representatives in that proceeding. I actually testified on the issue. Adam Schiff was one of the lead prosecutors, very corrupt judge named Thomas Porteous. And Thomas Porteous was initially a state judge, and he took all sorts of bribes. It was just, this is like the, the, almost the, uh, there's a special circle in Dante's hell, actually, for judges who are corrupt, who sell justice. And here's what they always say. Oh, I was going to rule that way anyway. So I just took the money, but it didn't make a difference. And they always say that you could never quite prove conclusively, or it's very hard to prove conclusively that that's false, but it doesn't matter. You you can't sell justice. This This is so heinous. Okay. And he did that as a state judge. And we had him, in effect, we, the government, dead to rights on that. But he, he said, oh, that wasn't when I was a federal judge. And, and so that doesn't count. And as a federal judge, he actually did continue to misbehave. But that was going to be harder to prove. Partly the reason it was going to be harder to prove is he wasn't, it wasn't as clear that he was taking bribes as a federal judge after having served as a state judge. He was being extorted by the people that had bribed him when he was on the state bench saying, if you don't continue to do this and this and this, we're going to out you for what you did as a state judge. So that was going to be a little trickier to prove. So he said, you know, he's playing this very clever legalistic game. You can't go after me for what I did before as a federal judge. You can't impeach me for that. And you can't quite prove that when I was a federal judge, I was equally corrupt. Maybe I was just a victim of a crime being extorted by other people, the victim of a crime that you yourself created. This is, so it's, you know, oh, I'm an orphan. Yeah, you're an orphan because you killed your parents before. Okay, but here was my position. The Constitution is emphatic about what's an impeachable offense. Treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And bribery is both giving a bribe and taking a bribe. Surely you're impeachable if you pay bribes in order to get the position. So, of course, you have to be on the hook. Given the ba- what, what it's all about, just basic common sense, even for stuff that you did before you got the position, if you bribed your way into being nominated to, for a judgeship, that would surely be impeachable. The people who took the bribes, 
you know, might be subject to impeachment, a, a president or a, a, um, an attorney general or something who took a bribe to advocate you for your judgeship, but you're impeachable also for your misconduct. So, uh, and I further took the position that you, that Porteous lied to the Senate Judiciary Committee when he was a nominee because he didn't tell them what he had done as a state judge and he actually denied it and he filled out all these uh, disclosure forms, not so different from Santos, you see. And, and so, Andy, what did you say before? Oh, in January 6th, Congress isn't just the oversight, overseeing body. It was the victim of, the, of this January 6th. That the Senate was the victim of Porteous's misconduct because he lied to them, made them look bad. And this is what I argued to the House Judiciary Committee. Of course, that his crimes in connection with his federal judicial office surely began before he took his oath of office. It began in the very process of being considered for that position. Okay, so I think we've um, covered the uh, the question of impeachment regarding the January 6th commission. So we, you mentioned, uh, we mentioned, and we've also discussed the report because they had a report. So the other two things that we talked about were section three of the 14th amendment and this notion of a criminal referral. So let's talk about the, uh, the criminal referral. They issued a report and in the report, they quoted chapter and verse from the uh, criminal code about various statutes that they believe were violated. Um, so what is the effect of this, and is it appropriate that they be doing this? It's appropriate that they be doing this precisely because it has no effect whatsoever. That's the ironic answer to your, your, your question. Our friend Alan Dershowitz, who's been on this podcast, has said, this is utterly improper. He even said unconstitutional. I heard him on the radio say this because it's a bill of attainder. Now, I'm going to tell the audience a little bit about bill of attainder. And then I'm going to tell the audience a little bit more about Alan Dershowitz, which is, of course, a criminal defense lawyer. And he was editor-in-chief. Alan was the Yale Law Journal. His best friend when he actually was editor-in-chief was a man named John Hart Ely, whom we've talked about on this podcast and who was referred to again and again in the Moore versus Harper oral argument. I think the greatest constitutional scholar, uh, arguably, of the, of the previous generation who wrote a book that inspired my own work in constitutional law. John Hart Ely wrote a note in the Yale Law Journal. A note is a student article. It was on the Bill of Attainder Clause. And it was the best student note that year and maybe of the decade, maybe of the generation. And the guy who helped him um, edit that student note was his best friend or his very close friend, the editor-in-chief of the law journal, named Alan Dershowitz. And it's a note called The Bounds of Legislative Specification, the Bill of Attainder Clause, something like that. It's in the law journal, I'm guessing, 63 or so. And Alan Dershowitz, uh, to repeat, was the um, editor of that note. Later, Dershowitz and um, Ely wrote articles together. Dershowitz started at Harvard. Um, Ely started at Yale. Ely was a criminal defense lawyer before he joined the Yale Law School faculty. And Alan Dershowitz is a criminal defense lawyer. Ely gets on the United States Supreme Court as a clerk the next year. And I'm um, just like, we're talking yeah, about just Kate like Shaw, Kate Shaw got on the court. Yes, <laughs> yes. But, but he can, and the, the most important bill of attainder case in American history uh, reaches the court. It's called Brown versus United States or United States versus Brown. Can't remember. Um, and Earl Warren writes for Supreme Court majority. And he lets his law clerk basically write the opinion. John Hart, nearly one year after graduating law school, takes his ideas in the student note and puts them in U.S. reports as, as it were, the law of the land. 
like, wow, that never ever happens, you know, in in real life. It's another like Marshall McCool moment. Why does you know why can't real life be like this? Okay, so now what is the bill of attainment clause? Well, it's this narrow idea, but it's a large principle. Very narrowly and technically, Congress cannot pass a law condemning someone by name as having been guilty of a capital offense and then passing a law demanding that that person be capitally punished. Technically, that's what a bill of attainder is. The legislature, by law, naming a particular individual as being guilty of a capital offense and providing for that person's capital punishment. Well, that's very far from what what has happened to to Donald Trump with this referral. But let me work now through the presses. The presses say, okay, that's literally what it means, but there's a spirit behind it. Okay, there's double jeopardy, but then there's spirit of fairness behind it. There are unenumerated rights, okay? I can't say, oh, well, you can't have double jeopardy, but triple jeopardy, hey, knock yourself out, you know? Or you say, well, life or limb. Well, suppose that it's not life or limb. They're just going to put me in jail for 40 years rather than they're they're not going to take away my life. They're not going to chop my arm off. They're just going to put me. So we should read rights broadly, and we do. And that's why I defended double or triple whacking Trump on basic fairness grounds. I think it's not unfair because he lied, and it's a different offense, and he obstructed justice, and, and, and you heard all of that. Okay, so the Supreme Court cases say it's not just a bill of attainder, it's contextually, there are broader structural principles, and in general, the legislature should not be involved in the prosecution and punishment business. That's the job of the executive when it comes to criminal prosecution, it's the job of the judiciary when it comes to adjudication. Okay, there's not just a prohibition of bills of attainder, but bills of pains and penalties. Now, what are bills of pains and penalties in, in old English law? designating someone by name but but actually providing for a punishment less than a capital offense. And they say bills of attainders are wrong, and for the same reason, bills of pains and penalties are wrong. Now along comes Congress in, I think, the, the 1940s or 50s, and they say, this is kind of in the McCarthy era, here are three people, they work for the government, we think they're communists, we think they're bad people. We pass a law in which these people are named in the law itself, and we provide that they, they should be forever ineligible to be hired by government. Now, that's not a capital of, you know, punishment. It's not even you know, criminal punishment. It's just saying these three people named in a statute, singled out for great dishonor, and there's a specific legal consequence. And not, They're not going to lose their life. They're not going to lose their limb. They're not going to be put in jail. But they are forever ineligible for certain government positions. Are they officers? And, um, uh, I can't remember. But in any event, in a case called Ex Party Love It, per the great Hugo Black, Hugo Black says this is a violation of the spirit of the attainder clause. And Love It is the, a case that then is further elaborated um, and built upon and extended in the Warren court by the Brown case by uh, Earl Warren. In the Brown case, certain people in effect, you could say it two ways, they're either named or because of what they've done in the past. I can in effect single someone out by by t- um, saying, you know, the person who crossed Main Street um, uh, in Walnut Creek, California against the stoplight three months ago, and there was only one person who did that, or I could say Akil Amar. Okay, so in United States versus Brown, certain people, because of who they are, what they've already done in the past, were by law 
ineligible to be leaders of designated union or something like that. And so is this naming Donald Trump in effect and saying he's guilty of a crime like a bill of attainder? And here's my answer. Technically, it's not a bill of attainder at all. Nothing capital about it. Neither is it a bill. I'm going to get to that, Andy. Yeah. So it's not, you know, you know, it's not holy, not Roman, not an empire. Okay, that Voltaire said about the holy Roman Empire that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. So it's not really a capital offense. It's not even pains and penalties. Quite, it's not a bill because it's not the House and Senate signed by the president. It's not even a joint resolution, House and Senate. It's not even the House. Truthfully, it's just a committee. And it has no legal consequence whatsoever. It's just named several people, uh, named Donald Trump, saying, you know, we think he, he actually committed some crimes. Now, once you see that, you know, it's actually legally, Andy, from a certain formal point of view, no different than if Andy Lipka says, I think Donald Trump committed a crime, or if Akhil Amar says, I think Donald Trump committed a crime. So, the reason well, it's a little is, different. If we say well, it, if we say it, and and it's not true, we could be sued. Whereas, uh, but but if any member of Congress says it, you know, because of the speech and debate clause, they can't be sued. Right. So they could have said it. In, so, but the, but the point is, sense. they they want publicity for it, and, and and calling it a criminal referral gets tons of publicity, but it's permissible only because it has no legal effect whatsoever. It can be utterly ignored and probably should be utterly ignored by the Justice Department and the special prosecutor. They need to come to their own determinations. Now, if I send them a letter saying, I think so-and-so committed a crime, they can look at that letter and then investigate themselves, or, or, or if you send them. But it is legally nothing more than that, but it did generate a lot of publicity. So again, my answer to your question is, it's permissible. It's not really quite a bill of attainder precisely because it has no legal effect whatsoever. Whereas in Brown, certain, in effect, named people were illegally ineligible to have government positions. Nothing. This is simply – now, it's simply a referral, which means nothing at all well, there's from a, certain, a technical, formal point of view. There's a certain asymmetry to the bill of attainder clause and because they Congress can pass a law – Praising an individual. National Aardvark Day. Right. You know, National or, uh, Andy Lipka or Day. Make, a, make Am- someone a citizen or something like that. Uh, America, national, how about National America's Constitution Day? Yes. Well, yeah. that, I, li- I like the sound of that. Yes. I think it should okay. be a constitutional amendment, actually. Um, um, so. and, 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 and that, and you're right, that is permissible. Now, Andy, let me just close the loop and say one other thing. We had a shout out earlier to Philip, um, now I'm this, and he's been on our podcast, Alan. Even if you don't agree, with any of that, and I hope at least you, you heard that we spelled your name right, so to speak. Because I believe that Congress has the greater power to actually impeach Donald Trump in a way that can't impeach Shaquille Amar or Andy Lipka, this is kind of lesser included within that. The deep idea of the Bill of Attainder Clause is Congress generally should be in the judging business, judging whether people have committed crimes in specific individuals. That's up, that should be up to prosecutors and, and judges, not lawmakers. And it shouldn't in general be in the prosecution business or the adjudication business. But here, it actually can be because it is in the prosecution business against officers and ex-officers. Now, I think the better course would have been to impeach Trump. And he can be impeached to repeat whether or not he is guilty of um, these four federal criminal statutes beyond reasonable doubt. That's that's not the test for impeachment. 
Well, but we talked about one of the punishments of impeachment being a dishonor heaped upon uh, someone. And, and, you know, in this case, this is a form of dishonor being, being heaped yes. upon. And they're doing it under the cloak of immunity. So they're using Congress's power in that sense, the power of publicity, the, the subpoena power, the power to heap dishonor as a punishment for perceived misbehavior, but they're not going. They're not bringing it to a vote on the floor of the House. So yeah. they are doing something that the Bill of Attainder Clause is designed to prevent, and they're doing it under this cloak of of immunity. So it does seem a little. I mean, look, I but, but I can't see, stand but, but, Donald Trump, and right. I'm happy no, no, to have dishonor heaped upon him. Right. But but it does but, seem like a little bit, uh, you know. And, and, but um, it's easy when it comes to Donald Trump because this is lesser included given impeachment. Congressional censures have, in general, it's more problematic if it's of an individual private citizen who's never been an officer. But Andrew Jackson was actually impeached. Now they but later, this is not um, the. This I, is I, just I, the I, committee, I, though. Hang on. Andrew Jackson was censured. Excuse mm-hmm. me. A- Andrew Jackson was censured. He later um, made them rip the, the resolution censure out of the journal books and, and like burn it or something because of the greater power of impeachment, which I've identified even now. Um, there's double jeopardy isn't a bar and, and ex officership isn't a bar because there's the impeachment power, which is dishonor. Um, this is lesser included within this. Yeah. For the House to vote on it. But this is mm-hmm. a this is a committee. Yeah, but you don't get to the House typically, even in impeachment context, before you have a committee vote well, first. Could, that was true in, in the Nixon case and the Clinton case and the, the Trump cases. So they are allowed to do this precisely because it has no legal effect. It does have a dishonoring effect, but they that is proper for Congress to dishonor officers and ex-officers. It get, generates extra publicity, but Congress is allowed to generate publicity for itself. And by the way, Grand juries are allowed not just to basically indict someone, they're also allowed merely to issue a report that dishonors someone. And they are, when a grand jury does this, it's called a presentment, they are utterly immune from a libel suit. Right. But the grand jury is the analogy, is the analogous body to Congress. It's not analogous. To to the House. To the House. To the House. It's not analogous to a committee. Yeah. Um, The committee is just, you know, a part of it, a, a subset. Okay, so that's good. So we've now talked about mm-hmm. impeachment, and we've talked about the criminal referral process. Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment. So we talk, we're talking about this as one of the things that the committee might might have wanted to get involved with. So what does that say? So let me read you um, this section: No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Okay, so there's a lot there, and I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. We may come back to it later, but because I also want to talk about Kevin McCarthy, I'll be quick for now, and we'll come back, audience, to this. A lot of legal verbiage, 
here's the basic point. If someone has taken an oath to the Constitution and then has subsequent to that engaged in insurrection or given aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States, that person can be disqualified from future office holding. Here's the big point. Who makes that determination? And for reasons that we've just been talking about, that really shouldn't be Congress. That shouldn't be the House or the Senate or even the House or the Senate together. That should be basically a judicial determination. Um, um, even if what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, for reasons we talked about, did Donald Trump engage in that? What does it mean to engage in? Is it mere speech enough? How much more than speech? Did he have to actually make a plan? Was there a conspiracy? Was there some sort of pre-arrangement? Committee can bring all sorts of facts to light, and I think it has. But ultimately, who should determine that? That's applying the law, the Constitution, to a set of facts and individuals. That's Donald Trump. That's a judicial function. And so what Congress needs to do in the January 6th, committee suggested Congress should pass a statute providing for a mechanism for judges to make this determination. Back in the day, this was called a quo warranto proceeding about whether someone was eligible for public service. So we'll talk about that more because no statute is on the books yet, and I'm not sure that we will get one given who's about to be speaker, but the committee called for a law to be passed so that a judge could make that decision and that seems sensible to me. So basically they're making a statement that this may apply and we, there needs to be a mechanism by which it's determined whether and whether or not it applies. And there's an op-ed by my uh, friend, Gerard Magliaca, former student and my colleague friend and colleague, Bruce Ackerman in the Washington post about all of this. The one thing that I don't think they really highlight is they, they focus on the word insurrection, but the, the action is going to be about the word engage, you know, maybe also about aid and comfort, and then they're going to be, in effect, free speech arguments based on a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio. Oh, we have to be very careful before we, we just say that mere oration and declaiming of things and proclaiming of things is actually engaging in insurrection. In the criminal context, a case, a Warren Court case called Brandenburg versus Ohio from the late 60s say you can't be criminally punished unless you're actually intending to incite, in effect, a riot. As long as you just are speaking and not, in fact, rioting yourself, you can't be prosecuted unless you intend to incite the mob and you do so when the likelihood of the uh, there's an imminent likelihood that the mob will be, in fact, triggered. Okay. Now here you say, well, he gets them all riled up and very soon thereafter... They actually do the certain things, and that was very likely. So that's going to be a, one set of questions. Does Trump's speeches and do his actions actually meet the Brandenburg test? A second issue is, oh, should that test be as high when the consequences are not criminal punishment but merely disqualification? Just like we talked about you know, in the criminal case, it's proof beyond reasonable doubt. It's proof to a, a jury unanimously. The procedures for mere political punishment are less protective than they would be of a criminal defendant. Now, of course, it's going to be even more complicated by the fact that this an analogous punishment is available through impeachment, which has its own standards. In other words, Trump can be disqualified from, from office as a punishment should he be impeached and convicted. And now this same punishment is available through, if, if this statute were passed, 
through a criminal proceeding. So it's, the, I wonder if that, now that is that double jeopardy? And if it's not, I think Constitution expressly says so. But uh, anyway, that comp- no, makes no, it a very complicated. They're, they're, well, no, they're, they're very different um, offenses. It's, it's possible I could get five years for bank robbery and I could get five years for arson and they could get five years for extortion, but those aren't double jeopardy. I might've done all of those things. I might've violated section three. I might've also committed a high crime misdemeanor. They're just different wrongs with different triggers, different procedures. Here's what I will say. And, and I've always, you know, as our audience knows, I've been passionately, fiercely opposed to, to uh, the prospect of Donald Trump ever having any kind of governmental power over anyone. That said, this qualification is a little troubling because it can be seen as disfranchising the people who support Trump. So we need to think twice and twice again before we, we do that. Ideally, we want to persuade our fellow citizens never to vote for Trump. And ideally, we want to persuade of that by showing them the facts in, in a committee report or in some other context. I have not truthfully, even though disqualification is one of the reasons that it's permissible to impeach ex-officers, you don't have to disqualify. And there are some costs, democratic costs, of saying to our fellow citizens, we're not going to let you vote for so-and-so. And if you do, we're not going to count your votes. Now, our and, friend, um, your friend, and my, I feel like he's my friend, even though I've never met him. Jamie Raskin uh, wrote a column recently. And by the way, we, we should uh, send our, our best wishes to Congress, to Representative Raskin because of his recently announced illness. Absolutely. Uh, he's, a, he's a gem. He's a prince. I've known him forever. And Jamie, our love and, and prayers and, and best wishes are, are with you if you or any one of your loved ones hears this. This podcast, you know, you you know, I've I've known you for forever and have have always been your admirer, and and I wish you very very all the best. And he wrote a, a recent uh, op-ed about this, and he talks a little bit about what he about the originalism of that of that call of that clause and how it came about. And I think we're going to talk about this, as you said, more, and we'll go over that that article. And but he talks about the concept of that you should not allow an insurrectionist a second bite at the apple because they just get to be better insurrectionists the second time around. And that that's part of what's going on here. And that that's a somewhat persuasive argument, I think. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that some more. Okay. Now, before we leave <laughs> um, this lengthy podcast, we definitely want to at least get started in talking about the issues surrounding um, the election of the speaker that's going to take place. Uh, we're taping this on um, Monday, uh, so it's going to take place tomorrow. Akil, you're an expert on this. It's more complicated than meets the eye, isn't it? So, Andy, what I'd like to do is a read about a page from a 2012 book, America's Unwritten Constitution, when I focus on this issue. It doesn't arise very often. I'm always interested in quirky, low probability, but significant constitutional episodes. Remember the podcast began with bullets dodged, all sorts of you know weird things that can happen between election day and inauguration day, deaths of candidates and near deaths and, and all the rest. So the first, the picking of the speaker on the first day of a new house is always a really interesting theoretical question for reasons I'm going to now share with the audience. I'm going to read a, a page or so. Usually it's merely a theoretical 
interest. Um, but maybe not this time around because the, the margins are so close between the two parties. So I'm going to get us started with, with this excerpt, which we're recording before January 3rd. And then in part, depending on what happens, we'll take it from there next week. And I'll give you lots more details. And you know who's going to be really important in that conversation? Um, Our friend next week. John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams. Oh, he's, a, he's <laughs> huge on this. But, but for now, actually, I'm going to keep him off stage. And I'm going to just read you chapter nine of America's House Replenishment is edgy because the House is not a continuing body. Every two years, the old House legally dies and an entirely new House legally springs to life. Although many members, most members nowadays, seek and win re-election time and again, none of these old hands, legally speaking, are holdovers from a previous election cycle. No member, not even a 30-year House veteran who has been the speaker for the past decade, is already a member of the new House before any other member, even an incoming freshman. The formal non-continuity of the House raises profound theoretical questions. On day one of the new house, who organizes it? Who sits in the chair? Who guards the doors? Who decides, at least provisionally, who's been duly elected? Who decides, at least for the moment, who meets the eligibility rules? Who decides who decides? Who decides who decides who decides? And so on. In other words, how does the new house give birth to itself? How does it bootstrap itself into operation at its first meeting? Ordinarily, these deep questions are rather academic. Typically, only a few seats in any uh, election cycle are plausibly subject to contestation on day one. But in December 1865, the issue was not merely theoretical. It was real and it was huge, as the credentials of virtually all the self-proclaimed representatives of the Old South were reasonably subject to challenge on day one. And then I go on. You know, that's the George Santos issue. Who's going to decide, you know, his eligibility? But it's also actually the Kevin McCarthy issue. Who's going to decide actually how the speaker contest unfolds on day one? And there's there's some precedents here, some practices, which we'll talk about next week. John Quincy Adams will indeed feature prominently. Here are just a couple of the issues to tee up. Um, does the speaker have to be picked by majority rule? Or is plurality, will plurality rule suffice? By what rules are these decided? Who decides whether it's majority rule or plurality rule? Who sits in the chair before the speaker sits in the chair? Now, there, um, as the audience will learn next week, there's actually there's precedence and there's actually um, a statute on the books that talks about some of this. It's a little easier because this is not the first House of Representatives. Uh, there were previous Houses of Representatives. To repeat, there, there are laws on the books. This was an especially fraught issue for the very first meeting in the very first House of Representatives because it had no you know, precedence. Or when the Constitutional Convention meets, who jumpstarts it, who sits in the chair, who gets the ball rolling and how? Um, what makes it any different than a mob? And how do we decide even who's in the mob, you know, who's eligible? These are really, in, usually they're not particular, just pure academic questions because everyone knows in advance that one party has an, a, a very decisive majority in the House. And that party has met in advance. It's caucused 
and picked its leader, and all the members of the party have kind of agreed in advance that whoever wins that caucus vote, they'll all support that, that person on day one. But maybe that's not going to happen this time around. And Kevin McCarthy has very little margin for error. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. And we'll also talk about the connected issue of George Santos. We've been talking about whether stuff that you do, whether you're impeachable after you're no longer in office. And I say yes. Are you impeachable for conduct that you engaged in after you were in office? I say yes. I say you're also impeachable, the poorest thing, for conduct that you engaged in before you took office. But now, technically, George Santos isn't taking office. Being a member of the House or the Senate isn't an office. It's a different sort of thing. But should you be expellable by the House? That requires a special vote, two-thirds, for conduct that you engaged in before you took your oath, before you, you, you entered this position in, in the House or Senate. Um, there are some... There is some language, loose language out there. Oh, you can never, you should never be expelled or for conduct that you engaged in before you were a House member. And I'm going to say, often that makes sense, but not. But sometimes it, it absolutely doesn't make sense. And in Santos's cases, it doesn't make sense. Just in a nutshell, we'll talk about this a lot more. Here's why it often makes sense. You're picked by your constituents, and if they want you, then they deserve you. And it's a House of Representatives where each district gets to pick, typically, the representative of its choice. And if you're a bum and you've done all sorts of horrible things and they vote for you nonetheless, the argument is that's their call. But my claim is that's their call only if they know the facts, only if they know that you're a bum. Okay? And in fact, they've pardoned you. They've blessed you by voting for you. But if they didn't know any of these things, if you lied to them, then actually expulsion would not be disrespectful to the voters. It would be deeply respectful of the voters because the, the Congress would be doing what the voters themselves would perhaps now like to do, knowing what they now know and didn't know before, but can't do because we do not have under our Constitution recall of members of the House of Representatives or senators, for that matter, the way we do in many a state constitution. So that's what we're going to talk about next week as well. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, it's fascinating. I think that, uh, so in a way, I wish we could have gotten all this in under the wire. But, you know, as you as you read over the next couple of days what goes on, uh, audience, you might want to think about uh, some of the rules. There's, a, there's an article you can read um, in the... Uh, New York Times, uh, January 2nd, New York Times, written by uh, Brendan Buck, that goes over s some of the issues. We'll post it uh, on, on the, in the show notes so you can sort of have a, a, a play by, you know, guide there in the play by play. Although I will say this, um, having read this article, uh, I think it, you know, it, it recounts the facts uh, faithfully. But his perspective is someone that's worked, it says, worked for the last two Republican speakers of the House. He portrays it as a disaster if the uh, speaker's race, you know, is drawn out a bit. The House, you know, it, it, it will even, first of all, it'll be kind of a mockery um, and we can't get anything done. And then let's say, okay, eventually Kevin McCarthy gets elected speaker. That would still be a disaster because it would show that he can't unite the party. So what? You know, the party doesn't have to be united in order for, for uh, you know, the, in fact, I would, I would say good. You know, you have to get a coalition. 
that's that that that's that isn't so bad. So I think he's good on you know the the facts regarding the speaker's race, and I recommend it to you for that. But I would I would say maybe you know look at that part of his conclusions asconce a bit. Well, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things next week. We're going to talk about a case in which the Speaker of the House of Representatives was a named defendant, tossed out of the case eventually, that is involving the seating and or not, and then the possible expulsion or not, of an arguably corrupt, corrupt congressperson. The case is called Powell versus McCormick, and it is a Warren Court decision. It's an originalist decision. It's about a man named Adam Clayton Powell who was excluded from the House of Representatives, and he says wrongly so on day one. And he's suing, among other people, Adam Clayton Powell is John McCormick, who is the Speaker of the House, you see. And I teach this case. It's a very long opinion. It's 80 pages. I teach it unedited every year. It's the case I teach right after Marbury versus Madison. It's a great originalist opinion to repeat by Earl Warren joined by the likes of, of Hugo Black and, and William Douglas. In fact, everyone other than Potter Stewart. We, we will have a lot to talk about next week. The Powell versus McCormick case turns out to be hugely relevant as well. And to repeat, it's a great liberal originalist opinion. So you'll, uh, you'll get a nice constitutional law class next week again. Now you're expecting the end of this podcast, but this is Andy back with a special announcement. We recorded this podcast yesterday for us, that is Monday, January 2nd. Today, uh, January 3rd, all hell broke loose in the House when the new House attempted to convene and the election of the new Speaker went awry. So we'd anticipated that this might happen, as you know, and we figured we'd speak about it next week. However, Akil has a lot to say, no surprise, and watching the coverage today, it was pretty clear that there's a lot of misinformation out there about the rules, procedures, and statutes that govern these proceedings. We've therefore decided to record another podcast in the next day or two, and we'll try to get it up on the uh, web and everywhere else as soon as possible. So look for an early episode of America's Constitution, maybe as early as Thursday evening, so you can be in the know on this fascinating and uh, once in a century happening. Uh, the best way to find out when the episode is available is to subscribe to the podcast by going to Apple Podcasts or one of the many other services we publish on and click subscribe or add show or whatever similar button your service offers. You'll then get a notification and the episode will immediately be available to you on your device when it's released. You can also follow America's Constitution on Twitter, and we will tweet an announcement of the episode when it is released. So thank you all again, and we hope you enjoy this week's and the forthcoming uh, speaker episode. Oh, and uh, please tell your friends. In fact, please remember our earlier uh, admonition to tell three people to uh, help spread the word. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>